of years here based out of Tbilisi, Georgia. And uh, I think it's fair to say that Tom is probably one of the one of the leading, uh, you know, minds or academics or experts in in Caucasus, ca- ca- Caucasian languages, and which is one of the most uh, strange and obscure maybe language families uh, to most people. And uh, it's where it's where Tom and I live. We live in Georgia, which is where the Caucasus languages, uh, I guess, sort of are centered. I think is a fair way to say it. Yeah. And. Uh, and we have, yeah, we have Tom on to, to talk to talk world the world's wackiest languages, basically. Uh, so, so, so Tom Weir, welcome, welcome to Spice. Well, Spice. thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So, so. it's great to have you. So, I mean, I guess I know what Georgian is, and I know what the Caucasian language family is, uh, you know, a bit, just because I, I I hang out with you sometimes, and, and you 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 explain stuff, but. Um, what like what what why why is this part of the world uh the caucus is so so special like why is it such like a a gold mine for someone like you yeah that's a really interesting question um it actually kind of is uh it has three different kinds of answers i'd say so basically if you want to keep kind of three words in mind when you're talking about the caucuses so the the first one is diversity that is to say, there are just a lot of languages in the region. Um, the second one is possibility. That is to say, there are lots of different kinds of things that these languages do. And then the third one is kind of uh, something that you hear a lot around the world generally in these this age of kind of globalization, and that is endangerment. So a lot of the languages in the region are also endangered. So, uh, so yeah, so I would say th- those are the three key ideas to keep in mind when talking about uh, why the languages of the Caucasus are, are interesting. Um, so I can just kind of give you, I don't, I don't know how you want to do this, if you, I can just kind of give you a, like, a little spiel about each of those. Yeah, yeah. Wanna, yeah, that sounds great, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so, so basically... Um, and just kind of jump in if you have any questions uh, about uh, or kind of curious about anything um, as, I, as I talk about some of these these ideas. So um, so basically, when we're talking about the Caucasus, we need to remember that this is like a, a region that's about the size of California, right? So so it's it's a pretty sizable region, but it's also just a region within Europe, right? Or it's actually at the edge of Europe and Asia. It kind of depends on how you want to define it. But so like. Uh, so it's about the size of California, but in that region, it has something between like 70 and 90 languages. So that's like a really large number of languages. Now, we're not talking about just different dialects. We're talking about like languages that are as different as like French and Chinese, right? So like completely unrelated languages. Um, and it kind of depends on what you mean by by language and what you mean by the Caucasus. So, uh, but that's something like twenty to twenty five to thirty percent of all the languages that are spoken in in Europe. So it's it's this kind of hot spot of of cultural diversity um, in uh, within within Eurasia as a whole. So so that's one of the reasons why it's really interesting. It's just because there's just so much stuff going on like right there. Um, so, uh, so there are four kind of nation states that that covers, right? So there's there's Georgia, which is about the size of West Virginia, uh, and in Georgia there are about twenty languages, right? So, and by languages we're we're saying that these are languages that are 
most of them have been there for like hundreds or thousands of years, right? So they're not recent. We're not talking about like, you know, you're in Brooklyn and you bump into a speaker of, uh, you know, Swahili or something like this. We're talking about people who these are, these are settled communities that have been there for quite a long time. Uh, so, so there are about 20 languages in Georgia. Uh, in Armenia, uh, which is one of the most ethnically homogenous countries in the world, there are still like 10 languages that are spoken in, in Armenia. And then in Azerbaijan, there are about 18. And in Russia, there are about 35. Some, some of that is overlapping. So some of those languages are spoken in multiple countries. But so, so, uh, so there are quite a lot of languages that are, that are spoken in just this small, small area here that we're talking about. And those, those languages, those you would kind of you can break them up into about six different language families. So three of those language families are found nowhere else in the world, uh, and those are uh, Kartvelian, which is uh, which is the language family that Georgian belongs to. So that includes also languages like like Swan and Migrelian and Laz. But these are languages that probably many of your listeners have never heard about uh, unless they've kind of like, you know, been to Georgia before. Then um, then there's Abkhazia. We have a big, we actually have a big Swan listenership, Tom. We have a big <laughs> listenership. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure up in Mestia, there's a, there's a, there's a huge, huge uh, crowd of people every week wa- they're, wait, they're, waiting yeah, for, for Spicy World to come out every week. But um Exactly. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, yeah. So, uh, so, so then you have Abkhaz Adigan, and uh, that is a completely separate family. That includes languages like Abkhaz, like Kabardian, like uh, Circassian, like uh, Ubik, which used to be spoken, it's no longer spoken. Uh, and then you have Nakh Dagestanian, and that includes languages like Chechen and Ingush. Uh, I know that you spoke to Neil Hauer uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and uh, so he's he's worked in in Chechnya. So so the language that he has studied is is in this family. Um, and but then like in Dagestan, there are just like dozens, like basically almost every valley has like its own language. Um, and so those are the three families that are sometimes called, well, they're, they're called indigenous or autochthonous, which is basically just is a big word that means like, as far as we know, they've always been there. We have no idea where they come from, but they've been there since time immemorial, right? So those are the three families that are indigenous to the, to the region. Then on top of that, you have three families that are, uh, that are not uh, in principle, indigenous, but actually we can get into a kind of discussion about what, what does indigenous mean? Because that's an, that's a, that's a, a complicated idea. Um, and these are Indo-European. So that's the, that's the family that, you know, we speak English. That's one, an Indo-European language. Most of the languages you've heard of, like, you know, French and Russian are, are Indo-European languages. Um, but in this region, we also have languages like, uh, like, um, Greek and Armenian. And then also Ossetian. Ossetian is the last remnant of the, the Scythians who used to, used to be in the North Caucasus. Um, so those are Indo-European languages that have also been here for many hundreds of years. So, so, uh, so they're, they're not indigenous in the sense that, uh, that they are not found anywhere else, but they are, they are, they have been here for many, many hundreds of years. 
So then uh, the next family that uh, that is maybe you can call not indigenous is Altaic, and that includes like Turkic, so Turkish, the, the actual Turkish language, but then also Azeri, those are those are Turkic languages, but also some other kind of smaller languages like Nogai and uh, Balkaria, and some of the, there are so so there are a few other smaller. Uh, languages in that family that are also spoken in the Caucasus. And then, of course, there's also Semitic, which is a very famous language family, but is not very well known. There are not many Semitic languages here, at least currently. So that includes like Aramaic, which is the language that was the language of Jesus, but also the Jewish Talmud. So there are small little communities of Aramaic speakers that are kind of dotted around the region. Um, and, and then also there used to be a lot of Arabic speakers, although nowadays there aren't so many Arabic speakers. Uh, so, so those are the six families that are spoken in the region. So it's just like a kind of gigantic, um, kind of quilt patchwork of, of linguistic and ethnic diversity, um, all over. And so it's, it, so it's interesting in part because you have all these peoples that have been kind of put together in the same place that, and they have all these, uh, unusual properties about their languages and stuff. So it's really interesting to kind of like see that, uh, because so, in some ways they're familiar in other ways, they're totally, totally foreign. At least to the, uh, I don't want to exoticize them, but at least, but they're they're unusual to even to specialists of the of, of you know linguistic typology. So so that's that's just kind of a survey of of the 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 languages that are spoken. Um, so there's an interesting question, and and I'm just gonna keep talking at you. If you do feel yeah, free to do feel free to like just kind of like you know, interrupt whenever you want to want to kind of ask some some detailed question. So one of the interesting things about this is is the question of why these languages are all piled up here in one space and not in other places. And so um, actually, linguistic geographers have been. They've been um, uh, they've been kind of looking at the questions of why particular areas of the world are diverse and other areas are much less diverse, and there are two basic types of uh, of uh, of contact zone that that linguists talk about, and those are residual zones, and those those are zones like the Caucasus, where over extremely long time periods, um, languages kind of tend to build up. And then they don't die off. So, and, and we're, by long time periods, we're talking minimum 500 to 1,000 years. So, like, you know, most of the stuff we talk about in, in the modern world, we, we think about, well, like, you know, the Russian Revolution, that was, you know, more than 100 years ago. That was a long time ago. But when you're talking about the, the history of a language, like, you know, 100 years is just like yesterday, basically, right? So, uh, so, um, over these very long timescales, a language like a language area like the Caucasus is uh, it kind of builds up languages because of its geography, because it's uh, hard to communicate, and that structures the way uh, the way uh, social networks are formed, basically. Um, so that's a residual zone. That's what linguists call a residual zone. And then uh, the contrast to that is uh, is a spread zone, uh, and that is uh, that is familiar from regions of the world like Central Asia, so like Kazakhstan, Siberia, uh, Uzbekistan. This, these kinds of areas, over many hundreds of years, over I don't know thousands of years, the languages because of the, the the topography of the land, languages tend to replace each other completely and totally. So 
so that you don't see a lot of language diversity in these areas because there's it's just really easy to travel and communicate um, whether you're talking about with you know cars or horseback or whatever um, it's much easier to communicate uh, to, and to create social networks in whatever kind of arbitrary direction that you want to talk about you can just move wherever right because it's real flat so so those are the two kinds of uh, of language zones uh, that linguists tend to talk about. They're actually kind of subtypes that, that some people have talked about. But those are the two main types. And, and the Caucasus is, is kind of like the classical example of a residual zone. It's actually kind of the area where some of these ideas were first formulated. There's this um, uh, very well-known linguist in Berkeley, uh, Johanna Nichols, who has uh, been behind a lot of the research on that. And she she is a specialist on on English, actually, um, the, the sister language of Chechen. So, uh, so a lot of the ideas that linguists have built up is because of this area of the world. So, um, so it's it's a really interesting kind of way to uh, whether you're whether you live here or not. It's kind of like it's a kind of eye-catching um, uh, region to study. Uh, and so, a lot of people uh, they either either whether they're in kind of American and European universities or they're living here and you know uh, they uh, they they just kind of live and do their daily day-to-day -day lives. It's something that that people talk about like you know uh it's i've never been to another part of the world where like bartenders have opinions about linguistic history like i remember one time several several years ago uh this is actually even before uh cory's bar was opened up uh, so th this was this was over in perovskaya uh i remember i was just kind of like hanging out in a bar and uh, I wasn't even supposed to meet anyone. I was just kind of like getting a drink. And so I started talking to the bartender and I told him my language. He goes, oh, really? And this was a Georgian guy. Um, and he said, you know, that's, uh, you know, that uh, Basques are our relatives. <laughs> and I was like, uh, OK. <laughs> so like, you know, in, in America, we don't you don't walk into a bar and people have like strongly held opinions about where their language comes from. Right. Like but like this is a part of the world where people do have those kinds of opinions and they kind of wear those opinions on their sleeves so um so it's 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 interesting in that way um but uh so uh so to get back to what i was talking about with the, the geography stuff um the these these uh residual zones versus uh versus spread zones um they're they're interesting because of what they tell us about social networks i mean you know we we usually use this word social network as like a synonym for, you know, what, what someone said on Facebook or what someone tweeted yesterday. But, but actually, you know, all humans throughout history have had social networks, right? So, um, uh, so the geography of this region kind of tells us a lot about how social networks get formed because people in one part of the region, you know, they physically have to go walk or travel in certain ways to, to interact with people. Um, so, so the mountains in, in the Caucasus, they, they hinder and, but also direct how people interact with each other. Um, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, interesting phenomenon that you find here that I don't know of too many other parts of the world. Um, it's called uh, vertical polylingualism. And, and this is like where, where people up the hill, they speak all the languages of people down the hill, but not vice versa. So, 
So like, I love this. So this is amazing to me. So like, so basically, you know, we think of people who live at the top of a mountain as remote, but actually, at least in the Caucasus, these people are really keyed up and tuned in to what's going on around them. Um, in the Caucasus, that's usually because like they're herders or they have some other pastoral kind of economy. Um, and uh, so, so they have to like, especially in the winter, they have to take their herds down slope, right? And so, so the people who are at the very top of the mountains, they have to move through all these other language communities to get to the areas where their their sheep can uh, and and other animals can have pasturage. So, so like the people at the top of the mountains often speak three or four languages. That's like completely unremarkable, like to speak three or four languages in this region, especially especially if you're in that kind of situation. Um, uh, whereas the the people at the bottom of the the the, the mountains are in the valleys. Uh, those those people don't uh, don't always speak as many languages. So so it's a really kind of interesting example of how. Like their their day to day life affects like really deep facts about how how the languages uh, and cultures are formed over extremely long time periods. So that's just kind of like a, a survey of of what the of what the the Caucasus is. Um, but uh, but all it's also the case that you get in this region um, uh, lots of unusual facts about the languages themselves that are not found in other regions. Um, so, so Georgian is, is famous for having these extremely long consonant clusters, right? So like you can get like eight consonants in a row. So like uh, the, the kind of, the kind of, uh, that you sometimes get, uh, Georgians kind of like trying to kind of test, uh, newbies coming to, uh, to the country with, with words like, which, which is, a, uh, which is, has eight consonants in a row, which means he is fleecing us. Right, uh, and that's 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 G V P R T K V N, and then you get a vowel. So so like so so basically you get these, and that's it's really unusual. Actually, Georgian is like at the outer extreme among languages in the whole world. So even if you go to other parts of the world, like Papua New Guinea or or the Amazon or parts of India, you won't necessarily find that particular feature. Um, but you also get, even when you're not talking about the way sounds are kind of clumped together like that in clusters, you also get unusual individual sounds. So like, um, so like in, you get these, these so-called glottalized sounds, which is where like you're doing something a little bit unusual with your, your glottis, your voice box. So like, uh, in Georgian, the word, uh, is, is the word for frog. And though that sound, uh, you're kind of like, you're moving, you're, you're, you're compressing the air with your voice box in a way that you don't find in more familiar languages. Um, and, uh, so it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a feature that's found all over the Caucasus, but it's not found in more familiar languages, uh, of either, either Europe or, uh, or even other parts of the Middle East. So, so that's kind of unusual. Um, but why do sounds like that come up? Where do they come from? Like, well, why is it that that's not a common sound compared to other sounds? That's, that's a good question. Um, uh, actually, so there are other regions of the world where you do get that particular kinds of, uh, of, of, uh, sound in, uh, in a languages, um, system. So, uh, there are places in the Pacific Northwest, for example, like British Columbia and Washington State, Oregon. There are a lot of native languages in that region that have these kinds of sounds. But you know, the, that region is also kind of known for having, uh, 
kind of typologically unusual languages, right, in a lot of ways. Um, so, uh, so the, it, it's not unattested. It's not, it, but it is. It, it is kind of rare, somewhat, uh, among languages of the world. Um, so it's 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 kind of like part of like the toolbox that 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 languages have. It's not something like um, that that you can't do uh, uh, unless there are like super weird circumstances. But uh, but it is a little bit rarer than the kind of languages language the sound systems that we have in more in more familiar languages. So um, so uh, we the, about the only really unusual sound that you don't find at all in Caucasian languages is click sounds. So the the sounds that are, are familiar in like uh, I don't know if you ever saw that movie from the 80s uh, the gods must be crazy um uh but uh, it's about so it, it's about this this guy from the kalahari so down there they have those click sounds enjoy and the caucasus doesn't have that but that's about the only kind of unusual sound that that we don't have in the caucasus so so it's kind of weird how that they all just kind of pile up um but so like it's also just like the whole way that they kind of structure like the the way they package information that is very different from from more familiar languages. So so like uh, in a language like like English, we have like prepositions, right? And in, in languages like more, more like French and German and Russian, so we have like a word that tells you like in the house or you know uh, outside the garden or something like that. But in these languages, they have like a little suffix that will tell you often. Uh, what what is going on and some of the languages have like literally dozens or hundreds depending on how you count uh, of these suffixes uh, so there's this language tez which is uh, spoken um, in Dagestan and it has been claimed uh, although this is a little bit debatable that it has the the largest number of case suffixes like this in the world so it, it actually doesn't because it actually has like a very complicated way of stringing these words together but um but uh, they they have ways of just putting words together that are very different from from more familiar languages. Like you can say from outside within the house, and that would all be one word, right? Um, and then uh, on the other hand, like in a, a completely different language family, like uh, like Abkhaz, you can uh, like create whole sentences and put them in one verb. So like, you know, uh, he should have uh, put a lot more effort into it is a sentence that could be one, one verb in Abkhaz, for example. So like all that information is just stacked into one thing that has like a dozen different affixes. So, so one of the reasons why the languages are hard for people uh, who are not familiar with them to learn is just the, the way they package information. It's just so different from the way that more familiar languages do it. So, um, so that's, that's kind of like uh, the second kind of main point. So that's like the, the possibility point that I was talking about. Um, and then um, the last point that I was talking about is that actually a lot of these languages, even though they're many, they're, they're numerically a large number of languages, a lot of them are actually really endangered. Um, so a lot of them are spoken by like literally a few hundred people, you know, um, and, uh, and, you know, it's not entirely clear what their future is. Um, so, uh, for example, there's this one language in eastern Georgia called Batsby, which is related to, to Chechen. Um, uh, the Batsby have been in Georgia for like probably thousands of years. Um, and, 
and they consider themselves ethnically, you know, uh, Batsby or their, their, their religion is Christian. So they're not religiously related to the Chechens, but, uh, their language is clearly related, but there are only about, you know, 2000, between 500 and 2000 speakers left of the language. So, uh, so, you know, it's, it's a really open question, like what's going to happen to this language? Um, because most of the children are not learning the language anymore. So, uh, so it's a, even some of the bigger languages um, uh, can be threatened like that. So, like Swan and Grelia, and those are two languages that are spoken in. Um, I have a, in, I have a question on uh, in, endangered languages. Yeah. So, just for the for the perspective of of us, can you give um, a perspective on what's lost when a language is lost? When if there's only a few hundred people speaking it. And maybe the children aren't as involved in the culture anymore, perhaps. Mm -hmm. What is lost when the language is lost? So that's a really good question. Um, uh, so there are lots of different kinds of things that are lost when, when languages die. Um, one of them is just that fundamentally the way that people have... Uh, their, their, their means of expressing their identity is lost, right? So, I mean, can you imagine what would happen if, if the English world basically stopped speaking English and that meant that we could no longer read Shakespeare, right? Uh, or we could, we could no longer have access to like everything that's ever been written in English, right? So, in many of these languages, like they have, like you know, great works of literature uh, and 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 ways of expressing themselves that that um, uh, that would be completely lost to future generations. So that's one thing. Um, but uh, also, like just ways of uh, of uh, of partitioning the world into kind of like like of of into different kinds of categories. So to use this Botsby language uh, as an example, um, this is a language that has lots of genders, right? So like we're we're familiar in languages like Spanish or French that have like you know masculine and feminine gender, right? Um, and German has masculine, feminine, and neuter. But this language has at least five genders uh, and maybe eight or more genders, depending on how you count it, right? So, like, it divides the world into a larger number of, uh, of categories, right, uh, on a grammatical basis. And so... So it's not like they 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 can they're only kind of like a prison of the, these categories, but they they do kind of they do express themselves through these categories in a different way than uh, than English speakers do, who only have three genders, right? So like in English we have you know he she and it, but uh, but in Botsby they have you know five different ways. Uh, on a regular basis. And then there are three other genders that are kind of not productive that aren't, aren't very used. But so, so it, it kind of, that gives you a window onto what is possible, right? Like a lot of, uh, a lot of ways of expressing yourself uh, are based on how you precisely kind of which pronoun choice you use, right? Um, that's a kind of a big, uh, big topic of discussion in the last like 15 or 20 years is like pronoun choices, right? Um, that it's something that we've always had, but, 
but it's something that we've been talking about a lot in the last, you know, in the last 15 or 20 years with uh, kind of uh, op- more openness about, you know, people talking about like transgender rights and things like this. So like, can you imagine like what it would be like if we had five genders in our, in our language instead of three, right? You know, so, so that's, that's, that's kind of one, one way of, of, um, uh, they could at least they would at least have the option of using an alternative way to an alternative pronoun, right? To to kind of express themselves. So. Sure. So yeah. So that's kind of like so that, so so that's basically kind of like my kind of like half hour kind of like spiel about the 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 region. Um, it's a it's a really kind of like complicated kind of uh area that uh that um is not really well known to to other other people um uh, people kind of hear about regions of the world like this uh like you know they hear that russia invaded georgia and then they hear oh there are these ossetians that are involved and and who are they and things like that but actually that there's this just entire universe that they exist in that's that's uh that doesn't make it to the headlines yeah I, I actually wanted to ask a bit about that because we've spoken a lot about languages within the region, but um, you know, I, f- I focus mostly on Russian foreign policy and its uh, relations mm-hmm. with neighboring states. Um, so I'm wondering about the interaction of these languages with others, uh, with either Russian or with uh, the languages of nearby regions. <clears throat> Uh, specifically keeping in mind the history and politics behind relations with Russia. Um, how have these, yeah, 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 how have these languages uh, interacted or not interacted? So it's a really good question. Um, and one of the reasons it's a good question is that um, is le- language is such a kind of like hallmark of people's identity, right? Yes. So sometimes, so sometimes when people uh, belong to a language community, they, that, that makes them feel like they have uh, they have some sort of obligation uh, to other people uh, that they identify as belonging to themselves. So, like the the Chechens in English would be a perfect example. They they identify as being kind of like brother nations, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so so sometimes these kinds of linguistic identities can be kind of like the touchstone for other kinds of political affiliations or political identities, a, a kind of Caucasian consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, so um, so it's not always the case that language will be the uh, will be a kind of the particular way that people define themselves. Sometimes they're just like, you know, sometimes they just, you know, don't like that particular politician. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, for example, like, you know, Ramzan Kadyrov, um, he uh, he doesn't really speak Chechen very well. Right. Yeah, but yeah. he feels like <laughs> he feels like he has to learn to speak better Chechen because he's had this thing. But whether through fate or whatever, whatever kind of a weird kind of historical set of circumstances, he is now the leader, quote unquote, uh, of of of. Chechnya, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so, uh, so he feels like he has to express his leadership also through language, yes. right? Um, so, uh, so that's one way that that uh, that language is relevant for for purposes of that, right? Um, that uh, language is kind of, is also used as a tool. 
for for uh, for communicating um, other kinds of non-linguistic identities. What was his first language um, if it's not Chechen? I mean, I think that he I think that he kind of like basically grew up as a Russian speaker. Like, you know, in like most of the I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to say because actually it, it's not like people either are one speaker of a language or another. Right. But like because, uh, you know, you can be a partial speaker of a language depending on kind of what your exposure was as a uh, as a as a child, especially. But I think that like in the formative years of his life, like, well, you know, when he was like, you know, five years old or 10 years old, he just wasn't exposed to a lot of Chechen because like Russian was the prestige language and that was what you did. Right. You know, so. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's it's that's kind of one of the ways that that uh, that uh, a lot of these these different regions they um, they they have they have issues uh, in part because their elites kind of were so thoroughly Russified mm -hmm. that um, uh, that now uh, now with either de facto or uh, or actual independence they. They feel like they have to kind of play these multiple games. Like so, in Abkhazia, for example, it's actually written into the constitution that you have to be an Abkhaz speaker. Mm -hmm. So that like excludes like most of the population of of Abkhazia, right? Because yeah. like, well, maybe not most, but it excludes a lot of people, right? Because there are like only about half the population of Abkhazia speaks Abkhaz. So, like all the Armenian speakers, all the Pontic Greek speakers, all the Russian speakers, all the um, the the of course the Mangralian speakers in Abkhazia, like they're kind of like excluded, right, from from a de facto you know participation by that rule. Now you could say that maybe maybe that's what they have to do to to achieve their their the Abkhaz have to do to achieve their kind of their their political goals of national autonomy but yeah. i mean it does have that consequence right so it's uh, i think you know in america the navajo do the same thing right it's you actually literally have to be a navajo speaker to be a the the head of the navajo nation in in uh, arizona so you know it's not just the caucasus where that kind of thing happens um, but uh but it, it's it's very prominent here yeah yeah, so you see these political and social effects, but do you think that there are any sort of secondary linguistic effects in terms of these languages interacting? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, it's definitely the case that um, that prestige is a really big has a really big role in how language spreads. So mm -hmm. it's definitely the case that, especially in the North Caucasus, um, that Russian has a huge, huge role as like loan words, for example, yes. like actual, like the, the, so like their, their basic words for like, I don't know, refrigerator or like a CD player or something like that. Those usually come from Russian, mm -hmm. right? Whereas in, in a language like, like uh, Georgian, they have their own words, right? Um, because uh, they, or they're bigger, they're bigger. They're, the uh, Georgian is actually the biggest indigenous language of the Caucasus. Um, it has about three and a half million speakers, so that's one reason why they they have their own words for things. Mm. But um, uh, but you know they have their own words for things in part also because they're less in the shadow, or I shouldn't even say shadow, less under the influence of uh, of Russian yes. as a kind of hegemonic 
hegemonic language, right? Because mm-hmm. um, Russian actually has like this, it was a, it's a very recent language in the Caucasus. Until about, you know, 200 years ago, almost no one in the Caucasus spoke Russian. Yeah. So it's, it's a very recent phenomenon um, uh, for as a kind of lingua franca for the whole region. What would have been the lingua franca before it? That's a good question. Um, I think that probably there was no one single lingua franca. So I know in like Dagestan, they used Arabic. Um, and in Abkhazia, I think uh, Ottoman Turkish was pretty common. Uh, and, and all in Western Georgia, like Greek was for many, you know, centuries, a, a very common language. But I don't think there was, until the Russians came, I don't think there was one single lingua franca. I don't, yeah, because like, you know, uh, definitely Latin never made any kind of headway here. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they were never colonized by other, other, other powers. Totally. I mean, Persian would have been maybe the closest other mm-hmm. besides Russian. Persian, uh, Arabic, and, and Russian are the three big ones over over many centuries. Okay, what is uh, what is the future of Russian as a lingua franca in the in the region, and could it be replaced? That's that's also a really good question. Actually, so uh, one of my friends uh, here in Spicy is an academic Tim Blava, and he's actually done research on uh, on this, at least with respect to Georgia. And um, and he's found that at least in Georgia, it is totally clear that Russia, the Russian language, is not going away. So even though you know the the Russian Federation does not you know directly control Georgia. Now, uh, it is still very, very much a living kind of part of the uh, of the kind of linguistic atmosphere, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, kind of like English is in in India. Right. So okay. in the same way that like if you go to India, like most most everywhere you go, you can probably use English. Um, you can kind of use Russian in the same way in the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. So it seems to you know, it seems likely that I think it's going to st- stick around for a long time. I mean, the Russians aren't going anywhere, right? They're, they're just right there. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, I think uh, I think Russian is, I mean, I, I don't want to ever say something like, it's here to stay, because, you know, history is really complicated. <laughs> but, uh, but it kind of, it kind of, I'll just go ahead and say it's here to stay for at least a long time, you know, so. <laughs> And, and, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, you know, uh, like think about if you think about America, like, you know, Spanish is uh, if you if you are from like California or Texas or someplace like this, Spanish is the first colonial language. Right. And it's still around like, you know, so Spanish has been spoken in Texas for over 500 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so, you know, even though it's already what, how long has it been since the Mexican War? It's been you know, more than 150 years um, that, that that the United States has, has you know, uh, kind of administered the, the Southwest. It's Spanish is still there. So likewise, um, you know, I think um, I think it's going to be a while uh, before uh, before, you know, uh, Russian kind of uh, disappears. I think it would take some sort of really big really really big kind of cataclysmic event of some kind or another mm-hmm. it would it would take uh kind of the breakup of the russian federation um Ooh. to I, I, I don't know i'm speculating here that's like not i, I don't know if that's going to happen um probably not but um yeah. it would take something big yeah it would take something big for sure yeah i just know 
personal experience the the one time i visited georgia um you know i i i do not speak a, a single word of georgian so i had to get by with russian um but yeah but in the cafes i would speak russian but really didn't get any responses i would get my coffee correctly but no uh no responses in russian yeah so like it kind of like the role that russian has here it kind of depends on who you're talking to and what generation you're talking to yeah and and kind of just all sorts of other like variables like so you know for people under the age of um about 25 or 30 like it's still the case that most of them speak it but they don't really use it in quite precisely the way that their parents generation did Mm, okay so so like so they so russian you know for their parents generation for the people who are now like you know you know between about 50 and and 75 those people who kind of were the last real generation soviet generation um for those people like russian was omnipresent it was like a language not just of high prestige it was like the language and and if you were a man you know you had to uh, go into the soviet military which meant that you had to to learn russian and um so you know it was a uh, it was a big it was a big part of life and that's just it just doesn't have that same role uh, precise, same precise role that it did back then, yeah. but it's still big. It's still, you know, it, economics alone would 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 suggest that you know they're right there, right? Um, you know, even if even if uh, Georgia stopped trading with Russia, it, it would still trade with Ukraine, and you know, half of Ukraine speaks yeah. speaks Russian. You know, Um, and then, you know, so like uh, other people in the region also use it. So it it, it, the Georgians, you know, could not just say, you know, tomorrow we're going to stop speaking Russian. Yeah, they couldn't do that uh, because they're constrained by other things going on around them. Right. Tom, what's the weirdest? What's the weirdest language? It's just let's talk like just the you know the so, superlatives okay. right now. Yeah, the weirdest. And, language. You know, and we um, live here, so like I know some of these languages. Like you know, I, I know I've, I've heard them at least. You know, like which ones the weird ones? The so okay. Um, I mean, to be honest, like Georgian's pretty weird. <laughs> like you know, uh, uh, one of the reasons uh, I started studying the language is because uh, when. I was first exposed to it in grad school. Uh, I just didn't understand what was going on. You know, it wasn't so much like the writing system. That's pretty. That's pretty straightforward. You know, the writing system has eight letters that look like the number three. But um, like uh, the, um, it, it, it's it, it's just everything about it. Like the fact that the things that you say in the present, like the the way you say a subject in the present tense, is the way you mark an object in the past tense. And the way yeah, the, man, that's the, so weird. The, I mean, it's like I don't. So I can get like super geeky about things, but I don't know. Like, there, it, yeah. Um, there, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of unusual things about about uh, about the languages from a kind of a narrow linguist perspective. But uh, how many of these languages do you speak? Uh, I would say like, I, could you have a conversation in I mean I, I would say I, I, I would say that I only really actually can have a conversation in Georgian like uh, I, I've been exposed to um, uh, to other 
languages, but I would not, I, I can say, you know, like if I'm on a Supra and, you know, there are a bunch of Mingrelian speakers, I can say like, uh, you know, you are my brother, which is the kind of, kind of thing that you need to be able to like roll out if you're like super drunk and you've had like, you know, six shots of cha-cha. <laughs> but like, so like, uh, um, but I don't, I can't really, I can't really say much more than that. <laughs> so uh so uh so it's 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 a huge investment of time i'd say yeah so. so the next time that i go to georgia so that i can actually speak some georgian words what are the what are the most useful phrases to know do you think <laughs> Uh, okay, so, uh, you know, like, obviously, like, Georgians will be super happy if you say, like, even a single word of Georgian. So, like, if you just know, like, Gamarjava, which is, like, hello, then, then, then they'll, they'll be like, oh, my God, and then you'll have, like, all the doors will open, right? But, um, you know, so, like, uh, so, like, just, like, the, I think just the basic, you know, you know, like, that's, like, you know, which is, like, attaboy or something. Yeah, yeah. Like those, those kinds of like it's it'll be harder for you to learn how to pronounce them. Yes. I think <laughs> than than learning how to than learning what they are. Right, you know the basic. What Georgians are are just absolutely like thrilled if if you speak even a single word of their language, and it's like almost to the point where like uh, they they kind of like profile you. Like, so they'll say, oh, that guy, that guy's like an American or a European. So he obviously doesn't speak our language. And so you'll have these like weird conversations where you are talking to them in Georgian and they'll talk to you in English. And then after like four or five exchanges, you'll have to kind of like, you'll have to uh, kind of say, oh, by the way, you know, I am talking to you in your language. And then they'll kind of like, oh yeah. Like, it's so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, yeah. They just, they, it's just like just totally internalized that foreigners don't speak, uh, don't speak. For them, it's like, like if a foreigner speaks Georgian, it's like, you know, it's like a weird dream where the cat tells you about like the Nixon administration or something like that. It's like a weird thing for them. It's really strange. It's, uh, it's like a, it's, it's, uh, it's something that they don't know how to process. Mm -hmm. So, so you, so it's, yeah, it's a very, it's very. I can confirm this. I can confirm this. <laughs> you can, yeah. you can be having a conversation. You could go into a store and, 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 you know, put something on the counter and, and, and purchase it, you know, you know, say, you know, how much does this cost please? And, you know, in Georgian and they will look at you dead in the eye and just say like, I'm sorry, I don't speak any English. <laughs> And, uh, you know, like they'll say like in Georgian or, or you know, they'll say they'll, they will convey to you that I'm sorry, no English. And then you just say, OK, that's fine. I'm talking to you this very moment in Georgian right now. This these words are Georgian <laughs> words. And and they're just they're just looking at you and, and waving their hands in front of their face, just saying, no, no, no English, no English. <laughs> this happens. It used to happen more, but it still happens. Yeah, I think I think the younger generation are a little bit more used to the idea of foreigners like speaking Georgian, mm -hmm. but there's still like you know how many expats are there in Spicy? It's just a few thousand, I think. So, you know, still for most Georgians, it's it's pretty unusual. Um, yeah, yeah, Tbilisi, it's become normalized out in the villages for sure. It's still going to be. Uh an exotic thing that the English teacher in the village is the one that speaks Georgian and that's about it. Or he speaks English and that's about it. 
Yeah. So what are you what are you uh, researching currently? So if anything. Uh, so actually, um, I, I have done research both on on Caucasian languages and, and on Native American languages. So I did. Uh, I wrote a book a couple years ago on an extinct Native a Native American language called Tonkawa that used to be spoken in, in Texas. But I don't. Um, I haven't. I'm kind of like. I'm kind of turning back towards the Caucasus now, partly just because I'm here. Um, and um, so I'm probably. I'm like really interested in the Udi language, which is spoken in like one village. In, in eastern uh, eastern Georgia, um, it's also spoken in Azerbaijan. And which village? It's in Oktomberi, or that used to be the name. Um, Zenobiani is, I think, the the current name that they. It's kind of close to Quareli, uh, so it's in it's it's pretty okay. close to the Azeri okay. border. Yeah, and um, yeah, like near Lago or whatever. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like uh, you know, they, those are they're, they're the so you know in in the Middle Ages there used to be uh, three Christian countries there were the Georgians, the Armenians, and and, and then there were the Caucasian Albanians, and the Udis are like the very last remnant of these people. So um, uh, most of them they, they've they've shifted to other languages like Azeri, but like so their language has been written for you know fifteen like longer than English basically. So uh, even though there are only about 4,000 speakers left. So uh, so it's like a really kind of, it's a potential goldmine for, for research. I haven't, I haven't actually uh, done too, too much field work on, on them yet though. Oh, dude, if you go over there, is that near Necrisi, Necrisi uh, Monastery? It's, is it's that, like right, it? it's like, yeah, it's like right next to, it's, 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 it's basically on the same kind of like mountain slope. So, you know, if it's, yeah. I think it's south of that. So it's like, so, no, no, keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, it's, so it's basically like south of, south of Necrisi. Uh, and there are all sorts of other little villages there too. So like there are uh, Avar villages, and I actually think there they, there's some villages that speak Hunzib. Like a lot of these languages, most people have never even heard of, right? Um, and they're all just kind of like you know doing their own little thing. And I have been for hundreds of years. So you know it's a uh, um, it's it's really interesting if you want to learn kind of like in a like little micro environment how how people interact. Uh, if you go over there soon, uh, in Shilda, which is one town over, uh, great, great winery. Oh yeah. I think, I think I actually, Definitely. I've been to a winery over somewhere near there. I think it might've even been Shilda. I can't, the, I, I, I think yeah, it's, I, like, it's like yeah. right on, it, it's, it's, it's a hundred meters away or like two kilometers away, whatever from the Cressy Monastery. So like you could, if, if you're in that neighborhood, you got to stop there. That's a yeah. spicy you know, recommendation. So, yeah, you know, to be honest, like doing fieldwork in in Georgia is a little bit complicated because you have to kind of like bond with the the people, and that almost always means like lots of booze, right? So like you end up like you know you have to have a supra, you have to like drink you know six glasses of wine to their ancestors, and you know, and so you kind of by the end of the day you may not be in any condition. <laughs> to do actual kind of work so it's you kind of have to like find a kind of fine balance between between kind of like kind of uh, kind of like bonding with the people that you that you're you're kind of like talking to and but also kind of maintaining a little bit of distance because they will push the alcohol on you for sure georgian tradition yeah what's your favorite georgian word 
so uh, actually, I have so there's there's one that also has a super long uh, consonant cluster, which is Vetturnelli, which means someone who tears tigers apart. And it has uh, 11 consonants in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it makes like a really good t-shirt. So, because it has all the consonants all in a row. Who is a person that tears tigers apart? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a kind of an artificial, okay. <laughs> this is a, a artificial word. I think someone was like, you know, trying to figure out like, what is the longest word that we could come up with? So I think that's kind of how that, that, that arose. Okay. I, don't, okay. I don't think it was like a naturally occurring <laughs> specimen of Georgian speech. Let's put it that way. Uh, you want you to you know what my favorite, favorite Georgian word is uh, for, for all those out there is, is zeg. Z-E-G, zeg. <laughs> Which means well, the day after tomorrow. Nice. Which is which is super useful because a lot of things end up happening yeah. the day after tomorrow. <laughs> so it's just such a great word that we don't have, and it's just so terrific. Zeg. Is there any other? Or do or do the do the so Georgian has a base twenty counting system. Do the do the do the do the other languages around there have also like weird counting systems in addition to just having like unique languages? Uh, actually, that's a pretty common thing throughout the whole Caucasus. So actually, probably most of the languages have a base twenty uh, counting system. Yeah. So like Abkhaz definitely has it. A lot of languages in Dagestan have that. There are some that are more recent arrivals. Like um, uh, Armenian, I don't think has it. Uh, the various Turkic languages, I don't think, but it's pretty common. Like it's kind of like something. If you've been around in the Caucasus for enough centuries, you kind of like end up picking up without even noticing it. So. And how many how many alphabets is it fair to say, or like writing systems? Is it, is it is it fair to say that the Caucasus are like has the most writing systems? Uh, so uh, the Caucasus has a lot has had a a good number of writing systems, but uh, it's not quite as many as like the Middle East. Like the Middle East has had a lot more different kind of types of writing systems. Um, some of them are from the Middle East, obviously. Uh, so like Georgian. Georgian has had three different alphabets, and they're all—all all three of them are still used in different ways. Um, and Armenian has had its alphabet, and uh, Caucasian Albanian used to have a different alphabet, uh, but most of them don't write in their own language anymore, so they don't really use it. Um, so yeah, but yeah, Greek, uh, Cyrillic, lots of different alphabets have been used in the Caucasus. What did okay? What did Caucasian Albanian look like? Did it look anything like Georgian or Armenian, or was it totally, totally different? It was a uh, yeah. It, it the, the the alphabet was at probably based off of Georgian. Um, uh, I'm not uh, I'm not actually a, a world expert in in this. There was a there was actually a German academic uh, who who was Wolfgang Schütze, who was the, the the actual world academic in this language. But um, he um, uh, yeah so. Uh, he thinks he he thought that it was a uh, that it was probably based on some early form of kind of Georgian, but um, but there's not uh, there's so yeah there's so few uh, examples of it that um, it's not entirely clear. Um, what's your do you want to share your Twitter and your um, all your Twitter projects and stuff like that or whatever you you know like pl plug whatever it is so we can share that. I, uh, I kind of, you know, explain where this word comes from, and uh, uh, and then I also do something that's called weekly Rustavelli, which is uh, basically 
uh, a uh, just a, a short snippet of the Georgian writer Rustavelli every week, and with translations. So you get to kind of see a little bit of what what uh, what Georgian literature is like. So, so that's about that. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. I, I can I can highly recommend the 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 Georgian word of the week. I love it. And uh, it, it helps me understand the language that I try to speak a little bit, know a little bit. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, sure thing. It's uh, been a lot of fun. <laughs>